This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, your weekly dose of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr Autonomy and I'm joined by our trusty regulars today who have managed to wrench themselves away from the chocolate and bring themselves into the studio for just an hour. Luckily, they've brought a lot of chocolate with them though, which makes me very happy. Uh, And we have got a range of fascinating stories to bring you today. I am struggling to come up with a common theme, so let me just tell you about them and maybe you can do it for me. Firstly, we're going to be talking about headaches. Did you know that there are a hundred different types of headaches? And you probably uh, suspect that they, they are the most common neurological problems seen by GPs. So we are going to be hearing from our trusty GP, Miss Medic, and our emergency room physician, Lollydoc, about what these headaches are and what, what we really need to be on the lookout for, what the most common ones are and what we can do to manage them. Then, in the spirit of all things chocolate, we're going to try a little mindful chocolate eating exercise live on air. I don't think the rest of the team know that I was planning on doing this, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, And I'd love it if the listeners... (laughs) We're not starting yet, Malice. Um, I'd love it if you listeners joined in as well. So I'll give you the sort of two-minute heads up, but go and get some chocolate now and get ready to join in. Steal it from the kids when they're not looking. Uh, Get ready to join us in the Mindful Chocolate Eating Minute. Then we're also going to talk about scurvy because apparently it's back in Australia. And then we're going to talk about, in a bit more detail, two major segments. One from Lollydoc about the... um, the inquiry into or independent review into sexual misconduct by doctors. Um, It was presented this week, so we're going to find out what was found. And then we're going to go to Malice finally for a segment that I'm not quite clear on yet. All I know is that it's about peptic ulcers and I'm not 100% sure why we're going to be talking about peptic ulcers with a child psychiatrist, but I am assured he's going to enlighten us about the link. So... Grab your chocolate and a cup of coffee and join us until we fill in the hour till 11 o'clock. Just listen to this. Good morning, team. Miss Medic, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. How many eggs have you eaten? Four. Is that all? Yeah, little ones. I remember you used to... Can I tell this on air? It's too late now. (laughs) Whenever I think of Easter, I think about this story you used to tell me about how, you know, you love lint bunnies so much and you would start eating them and about halfway through you would get a tummy ache because they're so rich but you just couldn't stop so you'd be sort of lying on the couch going I've got a tummy ache and your husband would be saying well stop eating the lint bunny then you're like I can't I've got to finish it (laughs) do you remember that not really (laughs) (laughs) but it sounds like me (laughs) do you know what I'm like one of those parents that searched high and low for um, some non-chocolate options to for the children to get. I mean, you can't control what, what the, the Easter bunny gives, yeah. but, you know, as parents we gave some extra things. Yeah. My Good children save. may well be in the car yes. listening to mummy. Um, hi, guys. Um, so, look, I think that's a good idea. And But you know what's not the best idea is when your seven-year-old daughter decides in her new bunny mittens that mummy has given her for Easter. Oh, that's the non-chocolate. The non-chocolate yeah. gift but to do a cartwheel on the shiny floorboards. Oh, dear. Yeah, so that that is – we've had an injury this morning already. So perhaps the – Is she um, okay? She has a very sore knee, so we'll see how this pans oh. out. But, um, yeah. Ouch. <laughs> Maybe just more chocolate would have been more better. <laughs> Rub it on. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning, Lolly Doc. Good morning. I'm going to say a hug sameach to all our Jewish listeners. So nice. it's Passover. I'm going to say a happy Vesaki to all our Sikh listeners. That's the uh, Harvest Festival, the Sikh Harvest Festival. And I'm going to say a happy Sankorn to all our Buddhist Thai people. It's the New Year Festival for the Thai. You're all so, over it. Wow. Yeah. 
I loved that. And I had my chocolate bath this morning. <laughs> Bathed in chocolate. It's delicious. So My mindful. skin is so smooth. Standard Sunday morning practice. <laughs> Pretty much, yep. <laughs> Malice. Oh, look, I, I second, Stop the, eating. second the greetings that Lolly Doc's just made and I just can't <laughs> wait to unwrap these very kosher Pesach lollies. Have they got alcohol is, in them? Which has got alcohol. So if after the minute mindfulness we don't come back quite as uh, <laughs> sane as before, if we're ever sane, it'll be because of what the content of this uh, I, I love this. I love it. It's like a kosher chocolate and you kind of get this sense of, you know, religiousness <laughs> and like, you know, sacredness and it's just basically filled with alcohol. <laughs> And a couple of cherries. But the question is, do you know, why do they say that alcohol is spiritual? (laughs) (laughs) The blood of Christ? Um, Yeah. Well, yes. Sorry, I'm Catholicism coming out. I think it transcends the logic and and, uh, rational mind. And instead of going irrational, you go super rational, which is the transcendent and godly and so on. And so drinking uh, alcohol on certain religious festivals is actually a commandment that you must do this. And uh, in the Jewish Passover, four cups of wine must be yeah, completely drunk. it's a lot, drunk. isn't it? Especially, yes. you should see the cups. They're huge, yeah. they're like goblets. <laughs> yeah, you go down to the special uh, dispensary where the cups are specially made for this occasion and they are whoppers. So did you guys bring wine today? No, that's this is the leftovers injected right, into okay. the chocolate. Do you know okay. what I, re- I reckon we're sort of doing? We're starting to demonstrate some of the different types of headaches. Like <laughs> alcohol, well, this is where wine I was going with chocolate, actually. Beer yeah. headache, chocolate <laughs> headache, caffeine, caffeine withdrawal headache. Yes. Well, we're treating that one. So, yeah. <laughs> that's there, my go-to treatment for headaches, actually. Water and coffee, I'm never quite sure what I'm lacking more. Yeah, that's not a bad one. Hmm. Lolly's not giving me a very good look. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm just, I, I don't bother with the water because there's water in the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we could chat for the whole hour. Is it the chocolate? Is it the wine? <sighs> Miss Medic, bring us back. What is going on with scurvy? Resurgence in Australia. Yeah, yeah. So for those of you who don't know, scurvy sounds like, well, it's it very much has roots back in our days of, you know, Captain Cook and the people at sea for months on end without uh, intake of fresh fruit and vegetables developing an illness associated with vitamin C deficiency. That is what scurvy is. And it's actually pronounced scurvy. (laughs) (laughs) You scurvy pirate. Um, Yes, that's correct. This, doc- this doctor got honours in his final exam. He knows how to pronounce it. And the pirate patch went along with it. That was a nice touch. Um, so, so you would think, how on earth are we returning to those sorts of days when we are really in our modern society, in our very privileged Western world, surrounded by a plethora of food, good foods... Um, and fresh fruit and vegetables are, are easy to come by. But we are actually seeing some cases of scurvy reappear um, in children and in people um, that are very overweight as well. So it's a really interesting one that you can be significantly malnourished while being obese. It's counterintuitive. It's, it is. Um, and it's because of the vitamin deficiency. So... Our bodies can't create vitamin C. Um, we're reliant on intake and typically the citrus fruits are the highest, uh, but you can get it from other vegetables as well, a certain amount. And um, and if you don't have vitamin C, your body sort of depletes its vitamin C stores. You start to be unable to produce collagen and collagen starts to break down. So we see this breakdown of... Uh, skin and hair and nails, teeth fall out. Um, It has neurological manifestations. There was this real sort of specific kind of um, psychological phenomenon associated with, you know, very weird dreams and becoming obsessed with food. And um, 
yeah, very and like a horrible, horrible illness with ulcerations and bones breaking down, and you know, fundamentally, people could you know pass away from it. Um, and even in recent years, where there's been, I think there was a child in Wales, maybe he was about seven, who went into cardiac arrest because of <sighs> severe scurvy, and there's been a, a few cases in Sydney recently. So surely it's not that easy to get. I mean, it's still pretty uncommon, isn't it? I mean, how how much vitamin C do we need? Well, you actually don't need a great deal in order to maintain. So just eating a very, like a, a balanced diet that involves some fruit and vegetables, you're pretty much going to be covered. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not sure about this specific amount and I don't want to sort of start heading towards the supplement kind of thing because I, as you know, I'm a strong <laughs> believer in that get your, get your vitamins from your diet mm. and, and, le- and you don't, therefore you, the supplements are not required. But um, yeah, it's a, a typically a small amount. So you, it's people essentially would be consuming probably no fruit and veg or the vegetables that they'd be eating uh, like crucified so steamed to or cooked to oblivion where the vitamin content has dropped Mm. so we do want to be eating sort of just a you know a balanced diet of fresh fruit and vegetables in order to prevent this so the the cases where this has occurred in kids it's those very picky eaters that or that have been you know over time just become increasingly restrictive in their diet, eating carbohydrates and not much in the way of fresh fruit and mm. vegetables. Far out, scary stuff. Yeah, so it just shows that, like, we need to... We do know what we need and it's um, if we adhere to good, balanced eating habits, we can prevent these what are potentially horrible illnesses. <sighs> We are going to go to a quick little track now and we're going to come back with some live mindful chocolate eating. So we're going to give you a demonstration of mindfulness uh, via eating chocolate. So go find your chocolate now. Now is the time. Listen to the song. Come back and we're going to be mindful. Lolly Duck, we're eating too soon. Listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. So, mindfulness. We've talked a lot on air about mindfulness and meditation apps and a whole range of things to do with mindfulness, including our on and off journey with mindfulness and meditation, Miss Medic. Yours is more on than off than, than my journey, I think. Shall we do an update on where I'm at with my meditation? Remember we started this yeah. on the air about mm-hmm. three, four years ago? Yeah, and we both committed to doing it every day, didn't we? Yeah, so let's. I'll tell you how many sessions I've done. I'll look at my app and then you can tell me yours. <laughs> I've done 928 <sighs> sessions, a total of 299 hours meditating. That's phenomenal. Yeah. It's obviously working for you. Do uh, I seem calmer? Yeah, and do you notice how Dr Autonomy is not reaching for her <laughs> app at the moment? <laughs> She's oh, had I'd it. love to tell you, but I, I don't have it here, sorry. <laughs> oh. yeah. What's that thing? <laughs> yeah, that's, I think it's out of charge, actually. Yeah. Um, a shame. That's a shame. No, my, I have actually dropped off lately with my meditation and I definitely feel the lack of it and it's something I talk about a lot um, as a psychologist with my clients. I'm a big believer in it. And I miss it. Uh, But I think when we talk about mindfulness, often people imagine that they've got to have um, a set amount of time that they've got to put aside every day and, you know, in our busy lives, that can just feel like another thing on the list to do. And so, of course, people never get to it. But one of the lovely things about mindfulness is that you can actually relate it to anything that you're doing because at at its core, it's really just about being in the present moment and using all of your senses to experience whatever it is that you are doing right here and now instead of your mind spending time in the past about what might have happened this morning or in the future about what you're going to be doing tonight. It's really just about being here and now. And so eating chocolate is one of the most beautiful ways to experience mindfulness. And we're going to do a little demonstration now. So Miss Medic, Lolly Doc, Dr Malice, I'm going to talk you through some mindful chocolate eating. And listeners at home, now is the time. So grab your bit of chocolate. 
And the idea with this is to... Don't put it in your mouth yet, Miss oh. Medic. You either listeners. Oh. <laughs> oh, this could be tough. Uh, <laughs> the idea as I talk you through this is to imagine that you are eating chocolate for the first time in your life. So using all of your senses to take in as much as you can about this experience. So we're going to start with just holding the chocolate up to your (sighs) face, like pretty close in front of you, and having a look at it. How does it look? How does it feel in your hands? What sort of colour does it have? (laughs) Does it smell at all? What happens if you smell it? Is there anything that happens to the texture of it as you're holding it in it's, your hot It's melting. Fingers? It's melting. <laughs> so now I'd like you to close your eyes for a minute as you hold it there. Have another smell with your eyes closed and see if you can smell it in a different way. And then I would like you to take just a little bite, not the whole thing, just a little bite of the chocolate. Keep your eyes closed. Just if you can, try not to chew it too much and let it just sit on your tongue. Take a deep deep breath in, see if those smells help you taste it. Notice what it's doing on your tongue. Notice the flavour and the taste. You can (laughs) smell it. I want what Bellis is eating. And now, if you like, you can put the last bit of it into your mouth again. Just letting it sit. (laughs) Soaking up every... Using every um, (laughs) sense that you have. The taste, the smell, how it feels on your tongue. One last deep breath. And then slowly opening your eyes. Wow. How is that? Delicious. (laughs) More delicious than normal? Was it different in any way? Hmm. I think I just fear I would eat less like this. (laughs) 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 Tummy ache will start earlier than normal. Then what am I going to do? Is not the recommended (laughs) rate, is it? (laughs) Autonomy. I do this with with my kids when I do an activity with my my kids, and I think parents can probably relate to this. It's very easy to get distracted and think about, you know, dinner that you've got to prepare or um, the bill that you have to pay. But to be able to sit down and actually be conscious of what you're doing allows you to enjoy it more, to be aware of the various interactions that you're having. And just like that chocolate exercise just then, you're able to really, aside from malice in the corner, having his little... Malice. Orgasmic episode. I know. His dopamine surge. Yeah. This is the real attachment hormone. I am now absolutely in love with these chocolates. <laughs> I'm in love. And of all the panellists you thought that would do that, it wasn't me. I just like to say. No, no, you're actually the most serious out of everyone. I love it. I love mindfulness. It's great. I do too. And I guess there's a whole range of ways that you can incorporate mindfulness into your day. But but that is a lovely example when you take your first bite of something. It might be your first sip of coffee in the morning, your first sip of wine at night. Yeah. Uh, the first bite First of sip of coffee of, at night or the first sip of wine in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you wash your hands is another example that's often used, just, you know, because we do that multiple times a day, using that time to just really notice the temperature of the water, how it feels on your hands, the sensation of the soap, to just use that as a little marker to be here and now and give your mind a little rest from thinking, thinking, thinking about the past and the future. And I'm sure we'd love to hear from Lolly Doc how that chocolate bath felt this morning. <laughs> um, a little like what you sounded about <laughs> two minutes ago. <laughs> No wonder. This, I mean, just having a one block of chocolate probably is nothing. It's foreplay for you. <laughs> oh dear. All right. Let's anyway, bring it back. Yeah, let's bring it back. Uh, so, anyway, I would encourage you all to choose something that you just do uh, in your normal life on a day-to-day basis and try to do it mindfully. I think that's mm. where mindfulness starts. Absolutely. 
Anyone got a headache? Just the neuropsychiatry of that is that when you're asleep, totally different circuits are actually operating. So whether it's the first taste of coffee or chocolate, the first in the morning, even if you do something as basic as opening your eyes with meditation, just to be mindful that from that dream state, you're actually letting light come into your eyes. It doesn't have to be a chocolate mm. or, or a taste. It's actually your beingness in the surroundings that you're immersed in. So it can be taken to that next level as well. I love it. So, Lolly you Dom- want the rest of us to talk so you can eat that chocolate, <laughs> Exactly, because obviously I was doing the talking I and know. I couldn't eat and I've got this lint <laughs> chocolate in my hand. It's ready. It's <laughs> this macerated, melted, half-eaten chocolate. <laughs> Lolly Doc, tell us for quite a long time all about headaches. All right. <laughs> quite a long time radio time, so about five minutes. So, look, as you mentioned in your early intro, headache is the most common presentation that GPs or the most common neurological presentation that GPs see in their practice. And migraine, which is a type of headache, is has been classified as the the seventh most burdensome illness in the world. Wow. So um, in terms of, you know, loss of function, loss of income, loss of quality of life. So the headache is something that all of us have probably experienced at some stage in our lives and there's lots of different types and even for a medical practitioner, headache is very confusing and very... Such a headache. <laughs> such, a, <laughs> such a headache. It really can. And in fact, when when quite often if you speak to some of my colleagues and you see a patient with headache in the emergency department or I imagine if Miss Medic sees headache in her practice, um, there is a little bit of a heart sink because they can be sometimes quite difficult to manage and treat and difficult to get to the bottom of because they're in, like many things in medicine, multifactorial. So I just Are there to, really a hundred types? Apparently. According right. to the uh, the um, American Institute of Neurology, there are about a hundred types. But, you know, I'm going to speak a little bit about the common types. And I just wanted to start with probably one of the most common and probably the less debilitating, but, but um, still nonetheless important, is tension type headaches. And they're called tension headaches because we used to think that they were related to muscle tension, so tension around the the neck and the head that caused the headache, and we've since discovered that's probably not true. But tension headaches are the pretty classical headache that people experience with stress. So they're, they're what we call bilateral, so they occur on both sides of the head. Um, they're felt as a tight-like band, either across the front of the head or the back of the head. Um, they're not usually debilitating enough to stop your normal function. So most people can still work. Most people can still get on with their daily activity, but they can be reasonably serious in terms of pain. Um, And they usually can persist for significant periods of time. So they can actually last for anywhere up to a week, um, but are usually much shorter than that. They're usually a daily type type thing. Um, And they're managed usually, some of the precipitants for that are are poor sleep, stress, um, uh, what else? Tension. Tension. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so they're the common kind of daily daily stress-like activities of, of, you know, your your daily life basically. Um, And they're usually managed by trying to remove some of the stress trying to sleep. They're the common ways to do it. But most importantly, they respond to simple pain relief medications or even to things like acupuncture or acupressure. Mm. And a very simple thing that you can do at home is in your webbing between your thumb and your forefinger, there is a little acupressure point, um, which is called large intestine four. Um, and if you apply pressure there for about 20 minutes, that can... Um, 20 that's got minutes? Bit, about 20 minutes, yep. Yeah, some gentle pressure. You don't need to like loose circulation to your thumb and finger, um, that can reduce headache quite substantially. And there's a little bit of science behind that as well. So that's Fascinating. a nice little tip. So that's tension headache. Okay. We're on radiotherapy and we're talking about all the different types of headaches, not all of them, the most common ones with Lollidoc. We've just heard about number one, which was a tension headache. What's next? Migraines. So we've just talked about chocolate and there are some really, really, really unfortunate people out there listening to us who get chocolate-induced migraines. So migraines are migraines are annoying. Migraines are horrible headaches that are what we call unilateral. They occur on one side of the head. They're often associated with nausea and vomiting and profound sensitivity to light. 
um, what we call photophobia, and they can be debilitating. So they'll often require time off work, time away from looking after your kids, time away from pleasurable activities. So they're, they're fairly horrible. They're often associated with auras, so things like flashing lights or strange visual um, sensations, and also very rarely but occasionally can be associated with um, neurological features, so weakness in an, in an arm or a leg, which mm. is scary because that can often be a symptom of stroke as well. So the first time someone has a migraine, we often see them concerned that they've, they're having a stroke and that's a reasonable fear to, to have until we can exclude that that's not mm, what it is. So frightening. Mm. So I feel really inappropriate talking while I'm eating chocolate and you're talking about migraines can be caused by chocolate for mm. some people. Sorry. Migraines are a weird thing. We, we, we've changed our theory about what causes migraines multiple times. And in fact, there's probably a little bit more of a change on in the scene at the moment. But we think it's a dysregulation of, of blood flow within the brain. So whether it's too much blood, not enough blood, constriction of the blood vessels or dilation of the blood vessels, there's a whole there's a whole complex process that occurs with blood flow and that's why you get strange neurological features because that part of the brain is is having its blood flow altered very slightly mm. and that's causing some weird sensations. And so the treatment of migraine is a little bit more complicated than tension-type headaches. And the most common thing to do is to try and avoid the precipitants and the common precipitants of migraine include chocolate, wine, particularly red wine, lack of sleep, and I'm sure Miss Medic's got some else, hormonal um, ones. And we do see women who um, do get cyclical migraines with their periods and that would just suck a yeah. million times more. Um, and so the treatment of, of migraine um, depends a little bit on how often you're getting them. So if you're getting them very, very frequently, this is definitely a time for you to see your local doctor, see your general practitioner, and often you'll get a referral to a neurologist, but local doctors are very capable of managing migraine. They see migraine all the time. And we often use what we call migraine terminating medications. And they include things like anti-inflammatories like aspirin um, or uh, neurofen, ibuprofen, um, but occasionally you might need some medications which are part of what we call the Triptan family and um, they're medications that should be um, prescribed by your local doctor because they do have side effects and if you're a little bit older and you've got heart disease, we probably should be a little bit cautious of those. Yeah, and look, I often see a large... We talked a bit about the nausea and vomiting is a big part of um, migraine for some for some migraine sufferers. So they get this sort of real gastric stasis. So their gut sort of just goes into a bit of shutdown and that's a big part of their migraine. And often that means that sort of uh, medications classically absorbed by the gut can be badly absorbed. So we often use things that dissolve under the tongue, nasal sprays, sort of real more interesting mechanisms of deli medication deliver delivery for those people. Um, and look, so there's some really important things about migraine that if you think you're a migraine sufferer, you should definitely be discussing it with your general practitioner. Getting on to sort of medications like aspirin are much better. They work much better if you start it immediately, the onset of the attack of the migraine, avoiding precipitants and something that I don't think is well understood out there. If you're a young woman suffering from migraine, focal migraine causing sort of unilateral symptoms, you should not be on the oral contraceptive pill. And if you are, you need to go and see your GP because there is a significant increase of stroke in women that have a history of focal migraine and that are on a hormonal contraceptive. What's focal migraine? So it's <clears throat> one-sided with sort of symptoms affecting one side. Okay, good So it might know. be around one eye or the visual symptoms affecting one eye or, you know, one hand, something like that. That sort of tends to indicate to us that it's much more likely to be migraine rather than the type of the tension-like headaches mm. that we were discussing, which tend to be both sides. And it also suggests, like what Lolly Doc was saying, that there may be a, a sort of a blood flow type pathology going mm. on and we know that that's not great combined with the pill. Yeah. 
We're talking headaches. We've talked about tension headaches, migraines. How many more? Just the one. Oh, okay. Really. One and then just Top a three. little... Yeah, then okay. a little, little warning about the things to look out for. Good. So uh, the last one I want to talk about is, is probably the most complicated and difficult, I think, but a significant burden in first world countries, and that's the medication overuse headache. Mm. Um, or withdrawal headache. And so, and we're seeing a lot more of this and I think it's extremely difficult to manage. We see it in people who often um, have started off with one of the other um, headache syndromes. So, for example, tension headache um, or even migraine for that matter. And they've started using a medication which is probably not the best medication for headache, in particular the codeine-type medications um, and other opiates, so medications that are, that are like oxycodone, codeine... Um, panadine. Panadine. Panadine for it. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, some of the, um, the combined medications as well that you can get from over-the-counter, so aspalgin would be one. Nurofen Plus. Yeah, so anything with codeine, essentially... Yeah. Um, and what we've discovered is that um, whilst these medications may provide some very temporary relief to begin with, they're also associated with a headache when they're withdrawn. So um, it's a different type of headache, but very similar to the headache that those people are experiencing. And it often can be worse. So you get into this vicious cycle of getting a headache that's worse, you take more medication, you feel better for a bit, and then you withdraw again, your headache gets worse, you take some more medication. Before you know it, you're, you're kind of popping pills very regularly and it's very hard to stop those medications because you feel sick when you stop those medications. And similarly, you can also get these types of symptoms when you're on substances like caffeine. Um, so if you're a heavy coffee drinker and you, say, drink 10 a day, and I remember I used to drink 16 cups of coffee at uni. Did you not? I did. Oh my no, no, no. And I remember the week where I decided that that was pretty ridiculous and I probably should cut back. And I cut back to eight. <laughs> and most people would just kind of laugh like you guys did. And But I remember that week because I cut back and I felt horrible. I was oh. nauseated. I had headaches. I had tremor. Like I was essentially withdrawing from a drug. Mm. Um, and so that, that's a significant proportion of people who have mm. um, a similar thing. Wine, people who regularly drink, you know, three or four drinks a night. Not, not a hugely excessive amount, but certainly... On, on the edge of things, um, when they start cutting back, they often experience a headache. And, and so I think those, um, those headaches should be managed in conjunction with your medical practitioner because they can be extremely difficult to manage mm -hmm. and they require some time and they and require support. support. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah, it's, a great, it's great that you've brought this up because this is something really common and it's amazing how much better you can get people to feeling just by cutting out their codeine that they've been self medicating with. Mm. Um, and I think that that's just, it's something that's not immediately you know, obvious to people that it's a, it could be what they're taking to treat their headache may be causing a huge part of the problem. So, mm. yeah, see your healthcare professional for help. Malice. This was just phenomenal, the coverage of the different headaches. I'd like to just add one which affects children, which often is overlooked or not even thought of, which very commonly happens on a Monday, Tuesday, start of the week, and it's called abdominal migraine. Mm. This is where the child actually gets a tummy ache and it's often written down as, oh, you've just got a bit of tummy ache, get off to school. That is actually called an abdominal migraine for a good reason, because one of the triggers is, in fact, stress. So the weekend is normal and quite all right. Monday morning, because of the separation anxiety or fears about what will happen at school in case of bullying and uh, so on. So... Uh, just a plea to take a Monday morning tummy ache sometimes more seriously than just you'll get over it. Mm. Take home messages, headaches, lolly dog. Take home messages, uh, um, we all experience them. They're common. We need to manage them by excluding precipitants is probably the most important thing to do. Um, and contact your local doctor if you um, are having trouble with regular headaches. And I guess the last thing to, to finish on is the warning signs of something that may be more serious and that can present with a headache. Um, and we think about things like brain tumours and bleeds in the brain. And the good news is that most headaches we see are not those things. 
Um, but if it's your first headache ever and you're concerned, then you probably should speak to your local doctor. If you have severe vomiting, if your headache is of sudden onset, not gradual onset, so, you know, the headache sort of came on over an hour or so, but if one minute you're fine and then bang you've got a headache we should see you and if you've got any neurological symptoms so changing your speech changing your vision weakness in your arms or your legs we should see you and you should in fact call triple zero if you have those we as in the emergency, emergency department, department or the gp correct. don't rock or up at any one. headache with sort of confusion and change in sort of consciousness so feeling vague disoriented need to see you mm. then as well Three, triple, ah. Hello again. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR with myself, Dr Autonomy, Miss Medic, Lolly Doc and Dr Malice. We have been eating chocolate mindfully. We've been talking about headaches. We've been talking about scurvy. And now we're going to talk about peptic ulcers with our resident child psychiatrist, Dr Malice. Malice, why are you you, talking about peptic ulcers? You may well ask. And perhaps the first impulse might be a thought that I'd like to analyse the discoverer of uh, something that changed medical thinking and medical perception in the last 50 years, which is a bug called Helicobacter pylori. Now, that would be a reasonable assumption that I'd examined this specialist, why he actually drank these bugs, why he gave himself ulcers, uh, why the medical community around him thought he was slightly off drinking these bacteria out of a petri dish, and it would be a bit off unless he had a bigger motive. And his bigger motive was that he had a singular idea And that, together with his colleague, this I'm talking, of course, of the Nobel Prize winner West Australian doctors, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, who won uh, a Nobel Prize for the discovery that what up till their discovery had been thought as a physiological disorder, that is peptic ulcers caused by acid, a physiological dysfunction in the stomach and duodenum, or by stress, or by spicy foods, with the consequent management being either antacids, stop stress or reduce stress like meditation and chocolates and so on, or reduce the spicy food. And that was the conventional wisdom, in fact, in the era that I was training in the medical faculties in the late 70s and 80s. Now, That's a pretty well-established doctrine in medicine. And in fact, surgeons were specialists in how to remove parts of the stomach, the ulcer-affected stomach or duodenum. They even went to the refined techniques of cutting parts of the vagus nerve, which is a nerve that if it stimulates parts of the stomach, it produces more and more acid. So the rationale was you chop the nerve, it stops the stimulation, and therefore you don't have the acid produced. And this was such a neat paradigm or model of understanding a cause, acid, understanding the intervention, the reduction of acid, and therefore the relief of the initial problem. So how is it that two people in West Australia say that, in fact, this is not a physiological problem, it's not an acid problem, it's an infectious disease? You could imagine his colleagues or their colleagues would say, like, you know, have another chocolate, have another drink and just leave us alone. We've got this down pat. But no, they actually persevered. And what Barry Marshall did was he ingested a Petri dish full of this bacteria, having had a gastroscope before to make sure that his stomach was okay. And then lo and behold, day three, four, he became sick. Soon his mother said, I think you've got rather bad breath because the bacteria that were in his stomach weren't being knocked out by the acid. And sure enough, by day 14, he had developed florid ulcers. He had another gastroscope, a tube down his tummy. They took a bit of a biopsy and lo and behold, they found these bacteria. How's that for conviction, you know, (laughs) conviction in your own ideas? That is really putting your stomach on the line (laughs) in, in, in the absolute sense of the word. But that's not enough for science to be convinced that this is truth. So what has to happen 
he then has to take the antibiotic, make sure that the bugs are killed off, take another biopsy and prove that in fact those bugs were the causative agent. So here we see, and for, for their efforts, they got the Nobel Prize uh, in physiology, I think. Now, what the lesson from this is, in medicine, we're looking after causation. It's a real conundrum. And despite 50, 100 years of medical wisdom that this peptic ulcer was a physiological disorder, one man's or two men's discovery totally turns the perception on its head and from then on it becomes an infectious disorder. Now, I was really taken aback when you, both our colleague doctors here mentioned something to do with the gut. The uh, idea that the webbing between the thumb and the forefinger, if you rub that for 20 minutes, that's called the acupressure point of the large gut. The other comment was that when people suffer with migraines, sometimes they get gastric stasis. And so now we have in medicine and in psychiatry, which is obviously my interest, the notion that we've actually got two brains. The one that gets the migraine, which we commonly refer to in the head, and indeed most of the symptoms are surrounding the head, unless they're distant neurological. But the second uh, brain is in fact the gut, which we now know has more serotonin than in fact the brain. So this is one of the chemical transmitters that has been thought to be the cause of many malaises of the head. In fact, there's more of this transmitter in the gut than in the head. Now, all of this may be sounding just, well, very interesting. The question is, what lessons can we learn from this? The introduction of the word game changer, which we've talked about on this show for ad nauseum uh, for the last decade, especially in terms of ADHD and game-changing uh, outlooks, technically these are known as paradigm changes. Now, what this experience of Barry Marshall and co. brings to mind is many of us are trained in medicine and we are not aware that we're just being trained in a paradigm. We're not being trained in absolute truths. They're not everlasting edifices of knowledge. They are the current knowledge that can last 50 or 100 years, but they're there to be turned over by a new paradigm. So the question arises, if there's new paradigms, how do they get introduced? And we've got the perfect example with Barry Marshall. It's reputed that he was ridiculed, or both of them were ridiculed, as questioning the undoubted conventional wisdom of acid. It's so logical. If you put acid on your skin, it will cause ulcer. So why shouldn't an acid placed in the stomach lining similarly cause ulcer? It is almost too self-evident to be questioned. Now, the question therefore arises, why would anyone question it? So firstly, they have to have a deep, deep conviction that something else is probably going on. Then in science, we really have a mandate as medical scientists to explore this in a systematic way. And in his situation, they had to follow what's called Koch's postulate, Robert Koch being a very famous bacteriologist from the 1800s. And they, the, the uh, postulates say that you have to demonstrate an organism, you have to demonstrate its presence in the illness, you have to demonstrate its uh, removal, reduces the illness, and afterwards you have to demonstrate that normal people, given this, uh, can also be infected. And in fact, as far as Helicobacter pylori, Barry Marshall completed this, although he hasn't completed the full scientific rigour for peptic ulcers. So there are some other causes as well. The lesson here, though... Newt, it's the story that you're interested in, isn't it? It's not the peptic, peptic ulcers themselves. Now, this is where it comes to be the real passion. A colleague of mine in Sydney, so Sophia Isabel, is... Uh, a publisher of an article in Australasian Psychiatry in December last year called Trauma-Informed Care. Is this a radical change or is this just normal good medicine is the question she posed in the article. And the idea here is that within psychiatry, both in the adult services where she works and I work in the child services, the introduction of the idea that trauma 
psychological trauma, which has a long history going back 100 plus years, has got a whole new paradigm of neuroscience backing what it is. So just to give a teaser, that PTSD, which has been classified in the mental categories of disorder in the Medical Journal of Australia's last week was reported to be a disorder with many, many comorbid conditions. Comorbid meaning PTSD coexists with uh, physiological, cardiac, immunological, metabolic and other disorders. At the moment, it is called comorbid. That is, it's existing alongside PTSD. Trauma-informed care and understanding would say it doesn't exist alongside. It's part and parcel of the picture. Trauma actually alters the basic way that we are, who we are. It's not just a mental symptom of flashbacks and bad dreams and prone to addictions. It actually alters the very metabolism of our being physiologically. So we are currently going through a paradigm change and that's the lesson of Barry Marshall and co for us, that it takes a whole lot of convincing of good, solid scientific evidence before the community picks up on this. And this is where we're at now. Lollydog. What you're saying, in fact, Malice, is that trauma is the helicobacter pylori of, of psychiatry. Wow. I think I will need another chockey before I answer well, I, that Well, I guess one. the suggestion is that, that trauma has caused, so that there's a cause. We're not just an association here, a causative um, role in multiple psych- physiological and psychiatric thank presentations. You for, thank you for elaborating. That is precisely the point that what helicobacteria uh, demonstrated was a known mechanism And we are now in a position where trauma, relational trauma, is providing the known mechanism in brain structure, metabolism and so on. So thank you for that linkage and that's a a really neat metaphor. I think it's it's such a fascinating thing to ponder how current health practitioners take on new paradigms, you know, and, and how... How we know when it's the real deal, you know, <laughs> I have this sense that sometimes paradigm shifts and game changes, maybe just because I've sat in the studio so many times for these discussions, but I have this sense that people talk about that sort of stuff all the time, you know, the media sensationalises sensationalizes everything and it's hard to know sometimes amidst your busy life and busy work life what are the things that you really should be reading up on and that's worthy of that very large tag and, and what's not Uh Do you have a sense of how you came to be certain that this is such a paradigm shift, if that makes sense? It makes perfect sense. And the corollary of paradigm shifts are what are called pseudoscience or scientism. That is that you very freely use a label without any of the backing evidence. Now, this is what Barry Marshall and co were accused of prior to demonstrating these factors, that this was just, in fact, the uh, argument was that his biopsies were contaminated with bacteria. They weren't causal, they said. It was just coincidental. After they took the biopsy, the bugs just started to grow there. Now, he had to prove by scientific method. So the way we distinguish between pseudoscience or scientism or fads even or fashions in science versus the real deal is by what's the quality of the scientific backing behind it. And if you read the neuroscience of trauma in infants and mother relationships, the science now because, and basically this is because brain scans now give us a view of brains that previously we had no access to. Great answer. I am going to wrap you up there, Malice, but I know that we're going to come back to this concept of trauma-informed care again and again. It's an ongoing theme for us and it's a really important one. Uh, it sounds like a, a profound time to be in that area as a, as a health care practitioner. Thank you. We are going to go to a very short announcement and we're going to come back with just a very quick update from Lollydoc about what's happened this week uh, with the inquiry into sexual misconduct and doctors just to bring us up to speed. Don't go away. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. 
We are on Radiotherapy on 3RRR and we are almost through the hour with myself, Dr Autonomy, Miss Medic, Lolly Doc and Dr Malice. Uh, and we're going to wrap up the show today with just a bit of an update for you because uh, the independent review into sexual misconduct of doctors was presented this week and we're interested in what they found. Lolly Doc. Um, very, very interesting thing that kind of, I think, sort of sort of skidded under the radar a tiny bit, was reported very quickly and then disappeared. And as as we often do here on Radiotherapy, we're very quick to, um, I think, um, present a balanced approach of practitioners and not, um, not, I guess, protect the practitioners that do the wrong thing. So this um, there was an unfortunate um, case of a Victorian neurologist by the name of Andrew Churchyard who um, committed suicide last year, who was accused of multiple um, episodes of sexual misconduct um, with patients that he saw. And in fact, um, one of the key witnesses in in this review was uh, a young man by the name of Tom Tom Monigal, and his mother is a, is a, a doctor. And uh, he presented fairly harrowing testimony um, as t- uh, towards this this misconduct. To, to paint a very quick picture, at the moment, um, doctors who are accused of sexual misconduct are required to use chaperones in all their consultations. And I just want to make a very brief point that many doctors who are not, who don't. Um, uh, engage in uh, unprofessional behaviour. Do use chaperones. I use chaperones when I see um, women um, at work who um, have got gynaecological problems, and so it's not an unusual thing to have a chaperone. However, they're required by the medical board to have chaperones for all their consultations. The problem initially was that these chaperones were paid for by the doctor or their practice, and they weren't medical medical professionals. So you can imagine that that system was was rife for abuse. You know, why don't you go have a coffee and take a break while I see this patient and, and we'll see you afterwards. So um, there was continued sexual misconduct in people who had this chaperone system. So the review was brought down by um, Ron Patterson, I think was the name of the professor, and he's well known for um, patient safety um, reviews. He looked at um, Australia and he also looked around the world and basically he's made some recommendations which the medical board are likely to institute but are looking at at the moment and those recommendations are to institute what are called practice monitors and these practice monitors will actually be medical professionals themselves and so they'll have their own ethical standard that can be subject to review. They will be independently paid for, not by the doctor who they're they're, um, chaperoning. Um, and they will be fairly rigorously instituted um, for all consultations, so they can't you can't not have a consultation. And the patient will be aware that that's why the person is there. So there have been reported cases of people saying, well, I just thought it was a, a student or I thought it was someone just learning. So they will actually know that that's why they're there. So they're the Such recommendations. Such important findings. Yeah. Thanks for updating us on that. We are done, guys. Uh, The scientists are gathering in the next studio, so we better get out of here. Thank you, everyone, for the segments today. Dr Malice, Lolly Doc, Miss Medic, Kent, spectacular job pressing the buttons. And you could have been eating chocolate the whole time and you didn't. I'm very (laughs) impressed by your willpower. Uh, We will be back at 10 o'clock again next week. Stay tuned for the scientists. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.